Well, I want to encourage you to return to your seats. We're going to dive into the message this morning. And as you are returning to your seats, or if you're in them already, would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we open God's Word? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us, that though you know everything about us, you are for us. Your heart for us is good, uh, your plans for us are secure, and you're inviting us into this journey of becoming more like you. And so I pray that as we hear from your word this morning, it would be through that lens, the lens of your love for us, of your desire to do good in us, and to bring uh, direction or correction only in order that we might become more like you. So I pray that we'd know your grace, I pray we'd know your goodness, and that your Holy Spirit would have free reign to work in us this morning to accomplish your purposes in us and through us for your glory. And we pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I feel especially honored to get to wrap up this series on the supremacy of Christ and ending our journey through the book of Colossians. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure uh, what came about that gave me the, the end of the letter here because it's a little bit of a unique passage where we go through the greetings that Paul gives both from people and to people. And I'm not sure uh, if the elders chose to give me this passage because they trusted that I could handle these greetings so well or because I missed the meeting when the passages got assigned and they thought, well, let's give that one to Nick. He's not here to argue. Uh, but actually, I, I think there is a ton of insight for you and I this morning in what Paul had to say uh, as he wrapped up this letter. So my wife, uh, Michelle, and I uh, both have a lot of family back in Minnesota. Uh, our parents live there, several of our siblings, lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. And so for us, almost uh, the entire 22 years of our marriage, we have taken at least one trip per year, if not two, to drive back to Minnesota and to spend time with family, get to see all of our relatives, and if, if you've not spent much time in the Midwest or haven't been to Minnesota, you may not know that in that culture, there really is a unique way of departing or leaving a family gathering when you've been with friends. I, I don't know if you know this, but there is actually a nine-stage process to the Minnesota goodbye. And in case you're not familiar with it, I would like to share with you those nine stages of the Minnesota goodbye so that if you happen to ever be in Minnesota, you would be prepared uh, for this exit strategy. So the first stage of a Minnesota goodbye is that someone will usually say something along the lines of, well, we should probably think about heading out soon. Now you'll notice there that the operative word is think about. We're still a long ways away from actually leaving, but that phrase we should think about leaving indicates the beginning of the exit process. Uh, the second stage of a Minnesota goodbye is the first round of hugs. We need to hug and that really indicates, okay, now we're serious about leaving. We give hugs and everyone says how great it was to see each other. Uh, the third stage of the Minnesota goodbye is walking towards the front door and the conversations that occur along the way, which usually include commenting on photos on the wall, family pictures, the decorations, and just any kind of conversation that might occur because of the rooms that you're passing through. Now keep in mind, we're still a long ways away from actually leaving, but at least we're moving in the right direction. Because the fourth stage of the Minnesota goodbye is the doorway chat. 
This is where you stand in the entryway, right by the front door, but you don't open it. You just talk further about the things that you did. You remember the jokes, the good times, the conversation continues. At this point, somewhere in the conversation, uh, the leaving party will comment, uh, which introduces the fifth stage of a Minnesota goodbye, which is, well, we really should be going now. Uh, to which everyone agrees and continues to chat further about this process of leaving. Uh, the sixth stage of a Minnesota goodbye, and one that I can actually remember very distinctly as a little kid, is called the hand on the doorknob conversation. <laughs> it's when your mom or dad actually has their hand on the front doorknob, yet they continue to talk. And I remember as a little kid thinking, just open the door. Can we leave? Eventually, the door is open, which then proceeds to the seventh stage of a Minnesota goodbye, which is the driveway open conversation. <laughs> Meaning anything and everything can be discussed, whatever might have been missed, what will the winter be like, the, the nature of the trees or how the lawn has been mowed, anything and everything gets brought up in this uh, seventh stage, which leads to the eighth stage of the Minnesota goodbye, which is the second round of hugs. It has now been so long since the first round of hugs that we all feel obligated to hug again just to make sure everybody knows uh, that, that we love each other and are glad uh, to have seen each other. This then leads to the ninth and final stage of a Minnesota goodbye, which is the famous window wave and parting words as you pull out of the driveway. And as my family would add, a tenth and uh, concluding stage of the honk as you drive down the street. Only then have you truly experienced a Minnesota goodbye. Well, you can learn a lot about that Midwestern culture from uh, the, the final greetings that take place. Their love for one another, their desire to spend time together, uh, not being in a hurry to leave. And in a similar way, we can actually learn a lot about the culture that the Apostle Paul was a part of by his final greetings here in Colossians. And not just for what it meant to them, but I think Paul establishing perhaps without even intending to, but in his modeling for us, some understanding of the kind of culture that is meant to be a distinctive of the church of Christ. And as we follow him, what does it look like to be a part of that community? So if you brought your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we're in verse 7, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter, verse 18. So Colossians 4, uh, verses 7 through 18 I want to say in advance, there are a lot of names in this passage. If any of you have been to Bible college or seminary and you learn different pronunciations, just go with it. The people aren't here to ask how to properly pronounce their names, so I'll do my best and uh, we'll get through all that together. But these are Paul's final greetings in Colossians 4. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You may recall that Epaphras was actually the one in chapter one that Paul had said was the very reason he was writing this letter. 
Uh, it's very likely that Paul had never visited the city of Colossae, didn't know this church personally, but Epaphras had come to Paul in Rome uh, or where he was in prison and had shared with him about their love, their faith, and what the Holy Spirit was doing, which is what prompted Paul's letter back to them. And so now he is uh, t- telling them more about how Epaphras is doing. He says, yeah, he always struggles with you in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It's interesting to note that in many of Paul's final greetings, he has words to say for women who are either hosting churches, uh, appear to have leadership positions. He valued the role of women in that society and takes time to specifically point out one of them who uh, we don't even know his relationship with her, but wants to give greetings uh, to her as part of this letter. And then verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, It is likely that up until this point, everything has been written in a certain script, which was likely Timothy's writing, because verse uh, chapter one, verses one and two, he talks about the letter being from Paul and Timothy. So it's most likely that Timothy has been serving as the scribe, but at this point, uh, the pen gets handed to Paul, and many scholars actually believe that Paul had very poor eyesight, and it would have been a part of the document that the, the script would have become much larger, a very different look, which uh, would have been very evident that it was Paul who was actually writing this in his own hand. And then he concludes by saying, remember my chains and grace be with you. So what can we learn from Paul's final greetings? What, what can we gather from all of these names and greetings and, and various phrases that he has to say? And I want to point out three things that I think are very distinct, uh, and perhaps not only in this letter, but in many others as you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament. And the first thing I feel we learn from Paul in this final greeting is that he was not alone that Paul was not alone. Now that might seem obvious in light of what we just read, but if you think about the way that many of us um, imagine Paul or or think about the ministry he had, we may tend to think of him as the heroic missionary, the street preacher, the traveler, the church planter, and even the martyr. And in many of those scenarios, I don't know about you, but when I think of them, Paul is, is out there on his own, leading the way, doing what God has called him to do, and sure, he, he traveled with Barnabas and then later with Timothy. But apart from that, I think many of us might realize that we tend to focus on Paul in his letter and his travels, thinking that he's kind of the point of all of this. And yet here he is at the end of this little letter, remember, sending it to a church that he likely hasn't even met. And so there's not a whole lot of reason for him to have to do very many greetings. I mean, they don't know him. He doesn't know them. He could have just signed off that last verse, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you. But he takes time to send greetings from no less than eight people. And that doesn't even include Timothy himself, who is probably the author or the the scribe of this entire letter. And perhaps even a few of the greetings are coming from Timothy himself and the relationship he had with these, these other men. We read about Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke the doctor, and Demas. 
And even though Paul hadn't met this congregation personally, he felt the need to send greetings from his whole team. And I I think it's remarkable and noteworthy, especially in the fact that Paul is writing from prison. If there was ever a time or a place, I think most of us would give him a free pass to say, well, of of course you're alone. You're you're in prison. You're, You're waiting for what's next. There's probably not a lot of people around you. It could have just been from Paul. And yet here, even in that unique circumstance, he is surrounded by people who are working with him and alongside of him. And he sees this effort and the sending of this letter, not as something that he had accomplished alone, but really as the outcome of a team effort. Paul was clearly a part of a team serving there and made that evident in the way he greeted the church at the end of his letter. Uh, The second thing I think we learn from Paul's final greetings here is what he valued in these men and that he valued faithfulness, connection, encouragement, and support. And I want to talk a little bit just about each one of those because I think, again, they can create a framework for us of what does it look like to be on a team or to be a teammate of others as we are on this faith journey. So uh, the first attribute that Paul mentions quite often is faithfulness. He says that Tychicus is a faithful helper or a minister alongside of him in the word of God. He brings up that Onesimus is also a faithful and much-loved brother, which is deeply significant. We'll talk a little bit more about Onesimus in a minute. And then Epaphras, uh, who he mentions here again at the end of the letter, when he talks about Epaphras at the beginning of the letter, he also lists him as a faithful minister of Christ, someone that is serving alongside of him. And in all of this, Paul is looking for those that can be relied on, that can be counted on because not only are they faithful to him, but they're faithful in their ministry of the word of God. Being men who are walking and standing alongside Paul in his preaching and proclamation about Christ. He valued faithfulness. Next, we see there that he valued connection. Uh, Think of the number of comments here that to us may seem kind of offhanded, but how significant they are. You know, he says that 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 Tychicus uh, will tell you how I am getting along. In fact, he says, I have sent him on this special trip to tell you how we are doing. It actually gives indication that apart from just sending the letter, Paul is actually sending people to them. That the purpose of him sending them is that, yes, they received the letter, but also that there is this connection happening. That men can report on, here's what's been happening, here's what we're observing, here's what we're seeing. Um, and, And creating that connection of fellowship, of Just communication between the two parties, Paul saw as being deeply significant. Then he says that Onesimus and Tychicus together will give them all the latest news. Isn't that great? It's like they're they're bringing the the Roman newspaper to them. Here's all the latest news. Here's, Here's the things you need to know because they couldn't find it on Google at that time. So they needed Onesimus and Tychicus to be the Google of the first century. Paul was sending them people in order to create and deepen connection between them and the church there in Colossae, and Paul and his team. He valued connection. Third, I see uh, in this passage, Paul valuing encouragement. He says about Tychicus that this is the very reason I'm sending him to you, that in all of this, in this connection, that he will be an encouragement to you. And then he talks about Aristarchus, Justice, and Mark, and says how these are all Jewish believers. They're the only Jewish believers That's what he means when he talks about those who are of the circumcision, that they were likely the only Jewish believers around him. He says that they have been a comfort to Paul. 
that they have been an encouragement to him, that they have been working alongside of him in a way that has brought him uh, courage to continue doing what he's called to do. And then I think he also brings up in Epaphras the, the prayers of encouragement that Epaphras has for them. Listen again to what he says Epaphras is doing, that, that he is always praying earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident in the whole will of God. So not only are Epaphras' prayer an encouragement to Paul, but Paul is repeating or summarizing Epaphras' prayer to the church in Colossae as an encouragement to them. Seeing that, that a fellowship of prayer as being a vital part of the work they were doing together. And then he also takes the opportunity here to encourage them to welcome Mark and to take time at the end of the letter to encourage uh, Archippus, who we know literally nothing about other than this statement to him, that he's encouraging him to carry out the Lord's work, the assignment that's been given to him. It's an opportunity for encouragement throughout these final words. And then the fourth thing that Paul values, he values support. He talks about how our Aristarchus, <laughs> I'm just getting tongue-tied on the names, uh, that our Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner. And what this likely meant is not that it's just someone he happened to meet in prison, but in that Roman imprisonment system, if someone was a well-known prisoner, someone of prominence or importance, they actually could have people who would live in prison with them to support them, to meet their needs, to help care for them. Uh, and so it's likely that uh, Aristarchus is one of those who is voluntarily spending his time not just visiting Paul in prison, but actually living there with him as a fellow prisoner, being willing to identify with Paul in what would have been culturally kind of a humiliating thing to be, a place to be that would not have um, been a very popular thing. But by his own volition, Aristarchus is choosing to support Paul so that day and night he can be a part of serving and helping Paul uh, through these circumstances. In the same way, the, the three men who are Jewish believers, Paul calls them his co-workers or his co-laborers. He is surrounded by the support of others. And if it ever seems to us that there was a, a self-made Christian or someone who probably didn't need much help, wouldn't it seem like the Apostle Paul? I mean, this man that planted churches, wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, I often joke about that you and I, we can struggle to remember to read the Bible, and Paul wrote the Bible. And yet here he is talking about how vitally important it is that he has these people around him at all times who are faithful, who are people who connect, encourage, and support the ministry that God has called him to do. So that's the second uh, thing we see in, in this final greeting is just the, the kind of person that Paul valued. And then third, and finally in terms of what we learn from these final words, is that Paul understood a good redemption story. Paul understood a good redemption story. I, I said we would come back to Onesimus. We actually know a lot more about Onesimus from a different letter, and that's a few pages later in your Bibles, the little letter of Philemon. Uh, one of the only uh, letters of Paul that actually has no chapters because it's all one chapter. But in the letter of Philemon, Paul is writing to a man named Philemon and encouraging him to take back Onesimus, who was a slave, someone that was under Philemon's charge, who had run away. Uh, we don't know entirely the circumstances from it, but in Philemon, we hear Paul pleading on the behalf of Onesimus that Philemon would take him back now as a uh, as a brother, as a co-laborer, 
Uh, he talks about how when Onesimus left you, he was useless to you, but now I am sending back him to you as someone of great value and great use, both to Philemon and to Paul. So we, we know that it's the same Onesimus also because in the letter of Philemon, Paul actually sends greetings from seven of these same people that he's greeting here in, in uh, Colossians. And so here is, is this person that really uh, Paul had no obligation to support or to try to gain favor with Philemon, but he really plays a lot of his chips to try to get Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to see that because of Christ, because he's become a fellow believer, that Paul is saying you should take him back and see him now uh, as an equal that can support you because Paul believed that God had done a redemptive work in Onesimus' life. In addition to that, it's really unique to note that Paul points out Mark. And, and even adds the clarifier that this is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. As you may recall or know from the book of Acts, that in the first missionary journey, it was Paul and Barnabas. And they had gone out together and they were uh, going across the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, planting churches. And then in Acts 15, there's the big Jerusalem council. And afterwards, Paul and Barnabas are, are about to head out again. But it says they have such a sharp disagreement that they decide from that moment to part ways. And if we were to look back at that passage, the entirety of that disagreement was around Mark, Barnabas's cousin. Because Barnabas wanted to take him, but Paul did not. Because earlier in that journey, uh, Mark had deserted them. It's a kind of a side comment made in the book of Acts that we don't think much about until later this comes up, that Mark leaving them was, was so uh, frustrating to Paul that he didn't even want to go with Barnabas if Mark was going to be invited along the journey. That, that gives you an idea of how Paul at one point in his life viewed Mark. That just to have him even accompany them on the trip, he's like, if he's going, I'm not going. Right? I mean, it sounds a little bit like a junior high dance drama here. Like, well, if she's going to be there, I'm not like, blah, blah, blah. But, but that's how passionate Paul was about it. That if Barnabas, if Mark is there, count me out. And yet, we don't get to hear all the story, but somewhere along the way, Mark had rejoined Paul. Mark had become a part of that ministry. Mark had become faithful to the point that now he is sending Mark uh, on journeys for him and tells them to welcome him if he comes, saying just as they've been instructed before, which makes me think that at some point in another letter that we don't have, he has encouraged the church about Mark. And there may have been a reputation that Mark had in some places that Paul had been, that, oh, he's that deserter, oh, it's that guy. But at some point, Paul had written to them, I think, rewriting the story, saying, I'm seeing Mark through a different light now. He's, he's changed. There's something about him that now uh, is different than he was before. And he, we see again Paul's value of a redemption story. And then I think even the way, one more point here of a redemption story, the way that Paul ends the letter is very unique. Do you see there in verse 18, after he says, I write in my own hand, this greeting Paul, he says, remember my chains. Now, why wouldn't Paul say, pray for, my, pray for me because I'm in chains? Why wouldn't he say, ask for God to deliver me from my chains? The fact that he says, remember my chains, I think indicates there's more that is on his mind here. If we look back in Philippians chapter one, Paul writes a little bit about the purpose of his chains. Uh, in verses 12 through 14, I want to read those briefly. Uh, he says in Philippians 1 verse 12, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here 
has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including all the soldiers in the palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, many of the Christians here have gained confidence and become more bold in telling others about Christ. Paul recognizes that his chains are actually accomplishing a unique purpose for God and his kingdom. That because of the circumstance he's in, it's not hindering the gospel, it's actually furthering it. And God is taking a situation that you and I would have thought of as a bad thing and using it instead to be a good thing. And how often do we see that taking place in our world? That it's through the trials that we encounter, the difficulties that we face, even the unfair or harsh things that happen to us because of the bad choices or decisions of others around us, that what could be a bad thing and could very much hinder the gospel in our life actually becomes the very thing through which God uses to put his goodness, his grace, and his peace on display to a world that tends to be watching more when things go bad than when things are going well. I think when Paul says, remember my chains, he's calling them to that memory that that here I am in prison and yet God is at work. God in this situation where the cards seem to be stacked against me, things are not going in my favor still, God and the gospel are at work. And I think Paul is saying, remember my chains because if this is happening for me, then the same can be happening for you who are not currently in jail, but may also have been facing some difficult circumstances uh, in the places where they were, the things that they were going through. Remember my chains, not to feel bad for me and sorry for what I'm going through, but to inspire and encourage you in what you're going through. Because God has a way of redeeming the broken things, the hard things, the challenging things for his good and for his glory. So if we, if we look at all these things together of how Paul uh, greets the church and the things that he has to say, we see that he was not alone, that he valued faithfulness, connection, encouragement, and support. He understood a good redemption story. What I see happening is that Paul understood his entire life and his work for Christ through the grid of community and support. Both the community and support he had around him, but also in the churches he had become acquainted with that everything for Paul was about this interconnectedness of the believers in the pursuit of living out the gospel in that world that knew very little of the Christ they were proclaiming. In fact, if we had time to look this morning about the most common metaphors for the church that are used throughout the New Testament, we would find phrases like that we are the house or the temple of God, that we are his family, or that we are his people and his nation. And in all of these metaphors of a house, a family, a people, it's indications of those who, yes, are an individual, but are a part of something much greater than themselves. That every piece of the building, every brick in the temple comes together to form this temple, this house for God. That the family, yes, is a unit, but it's made up of people who participate in that family. And that a people or a nation are greater than any one individual, but every individual needed for that people or nation to be great. This is Paul's view of the life of faith that we see. Uh, He says this, I think, even more clearly in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes about this and he says, So now... You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. 
You are members of God's family. We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And we who believe are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also joined together as part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Did you hear that in just a couple of verses? Family, people, house, temple, joined together, initially different and separate, but brought together into a place of belonging. What I see Paul showing us in all of this, in his greetings here at the end of Colossians 4, is a recognition that I think is vital for you and I as we think about faith. And that's this, that our faith journey is a team sport. That our faith journey is something we do together, not a solo mission. And I think it's particularly challenging for us because we have lived, the majority of us in the room, our lives in Western American culture that has prized and valued from the beginning of America this idea of individualism. And that if it's got to be, it's up to me. And that I, I have what it takes, you know, be your best self, live your best life. So much of what our culture values is the individual experience. And so it's challenging for us to take that script and turn it over to look at a very Eastern, Middle East society and a culture that was developing there that I think isn't just about cultural differences, but actually an understanding of how faith works that our faith journey is a team sport. You know, I, I fear that for many of us, we may think of our faith more like running a marathon. Now, don't worry, you don't have to like marathons to understand this illustration, so stay with me. But if you were to go run a marathon or even just a 10K race, you might know that there are other people involved. There's people running support stations and handing out water, there may be fans on the course cheering you on and course officials making sure you don't turn the wrong direction. But ultimately in a marathon or even a 10K, the race is up to you. The speed at which you run, uh, the condition that you're in, if you start to feel faint and need to pull off and don't even finish the race and fail, or if you exceed and run well and get your best time ever, in the end, it's up to you. That yes, others may be a part of it. There's even others running around you on that same journey, going in the same direction. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we see that it's up to us. And I wonder if we don't imagine our faith journey a little bit like that, that it's my faith journey and others around me can help, but really it's up to me. When I think what Paul is showing us here at the end of Colossians is that our faith is really a lot more like participating in the hood to coast. Some of you have done that or been a part of relays or similar uh, type events. The hood to coast starting at Mount Hood, going all the way to the coast, almost 200 miles. And in this event, you need a team. You get to have 12 runners on your team two vans, two van drivers. And there's an emphasis that this really isn't something that you ought to do alone. Now, there are a few people that have tried and that kind of ruins my metaphor or illustration, so let's not think about them. Let's think about the rest of us, that if we attempted to run from Mount Hood to the coast by ourselves, somewhere around Rhododendron or Sandy, or maybe you're in really good shape, you make it all the way into Gresham, somewhere along the way, we're done. And it'd feel like, well, our race is over. But that's why they give you a team. You have, you have people that are alternating and taking turns and it's not ultimately up to you. Yes, you have a part to play and your part is vital and important, but you are not alone. 
And there's even the illustration that if someone is unable to complete a leg, the others on the team can jump in and take over for them, which actually happened for me two years ago when in the middle of one of my runs, I popped a tendon in my foot and I had two more legs to go after that, but I was unable to run. Was our team out? Was it, was it over? Well, my running was over, but our team carried on. Two other people added my miles on either end of their runs and we made it all the way to the beach. And what I love about that story is I went through the finish line like the rest of them. I got a medal like the rest of them, even though I hadn't been able uh, for various reasons to do my part on the last two legs. And I think in some ways that's an accurate representation of the faith journey that you and I are on. There may be seasons or times where we feel like we're not able to run. And at those times, we might be tempted to feel like, well, I'm, I'm failing, all right? I don't have what it takes to follow Christ anymore. And yet, if we're on a team, if we're surrounded by people that we see this is what the faith journey is about, they can pick us up and even carry us along for a time until we're able to get back into the rhythm or into the contributions that we're used to. And so I wonder, when you think about faith, when you think about your role in the faith journey, which one represents your view? Are you in the race where it's up to you and if you fail, you fail, and if you win, you win, but ultimately it's yours? Or do you see yourself as being part of a team, as being surrounded by others who are supporting, encouraging, connecting, and faithful to you and to Christ in together following after him? There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I, I think that's a good description of what we're after as we follow Christ. That there's not a lot of marks given for running fast or faster than everybody else. But if you want to do that, then go alone. But there's a lot to be said about perseverance, faithfulness, endurance, discipline, and going far, following Christ for a lifetime. And if that's the case, then we are wise to go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So what could you and I do with this passage? Do we just kind of look at it and appreciate, oh, those sound like nice people and interesting names and maybe file one of those away to name one of my kids someday. You know, you could have an Epaphras running around your house. Uh, is that all this is for, is to look at and acknowledge that Paul had some good friends around him? Or could you and I learn from this in a way to say, this should alter the way I see faith? And I have three ideas for us as we look at how we could put this into practice. So number one, I want to ask you the question, who is on your team? Who is on your team? What I would note about Paul is that as he was aging, it would appear that he was growing in his need for others. In his letter to Philemon, he will call himself an old man. He'll appeal to Philemon and say, if you can, you know, just take this from an old man and do this one thing for me. Now, we don't actually know how old Paul was. And in that culture, it may have just meant that he was older than Philemon. And so he was kind of playing the respect your elders card. Uh, but it is clear from the setting for when Colossians was written that this is towards the end of Paul's life. And here he is at the end of his life, listing person after person that are around him, encouraging him, supporting him. Interestingly, if we went back and looked at some of Paul's story in the book of Acts, early on when he came to faith in Christ, he was off by himself. 
He was in the wilderness being trained by the Lord. And then, then he was brought to the disciples in Jerusalem by one other person. He, he kind of started a little bit of his faith on a solo mission. But then as God continued to use him and send him around the world, the team around him appeared to be growing larger and larger. And I wonder for us, especially in American Christianity, if we don't sometimes go the opposite way. That the more we learn, the more we know how to do it, the less we think we need other people. That maybe early on we felt like, well, I need someone to teach me scriptures or I need to go to church to learn. But the more we learn and the more we've read and the more we understand for ourselves, do we arrive at a point of thinking, well, I've, I've kind of got this down. We feel more confident and comfortable doing it ourselves. We risk less. We think outside the box less because that would require us to do things we're not comfortable with. Do we grow towards doing it ourselves because now we know how to do it? Or like Paul, what if we felt the support of a full team on the journey with us? Would we be able to risk more, think outside the box, do things that we're not comfortable with because we know at the end of the day, it's not up to us. And so I encourage us to embrace our role. Embrace your role on a team and whether you're the Paul and you feel like on a team that you're a part of, you're leading the way and, and, and writing the letters and planting the churches or maybe you feel like you're a justice. You know, it's this guy in here named Justice, also named Jesus. We know literally nothing else about the guy except that he was a, one of the three Jewish Christians around Paul. But it was clear that to Paul, he was vital. He was an important role player. And whether you feel like you're more of a Paul or more of a Justice or someone in between, you have a role to play on the team. And so who is it that you turn to? Who is it that you think of as your team? What I, what I think is significant about this for us too is this isn't just one church writing to another church because I think in some ways we generalize or we broaden it to that. Like, well, this is Paul's church writing to the Colossian church. Well, no, actually, this is a very eclectic gathering of people. He's got a, a runaway slave. He's got a former deserter that's now become a friend. He's got Timothy that he's traveled with. He's got uh, Epaphras who's from their church that somehow has met with. These people who've come from all different walks of life have become vital to him as a support system. And so I think for us, the same might be true that, that some of those that we need to see as vital to our team don't sit in the room with you at church on Sunday. And that's okay, but it's people that God has brought into your life, maybe a mentor from early on, maybe a friend from college, maybe a family member that, that always blesses you and strengthens you, maybe it's someone that you've met at a former job, and all of these have become part of your support system. But I think for us, the danger might be that as we move through life and we go into new seasons, we sometimes forget the support that we had from people in those seasons. And perhaps this is a moment for you that if you would think about really who is on your team, who would you look to for encouragement, support, connection, faithfulness? And if you haven't reached out to them in a while, if you haven't connected lately, this week, could you invite them to lunch? Could you reach out for a phone call? Could you spend some time on FaceTime or Marco Polo just reconnecting with those that you feel are a part of the team that God has given you? Who is on your team? Uh, second, way I think we can, second way I think we can put this into practice is to ask the question, how can you grow as a teammate of others? How might you grow as a teammate of others? Because if God has given us a team, that means he's also given us teammates. And it's not only our job to think about how they support or encourage us, but then also to re reciprocate and think, God, how will you use me 
to be that support and encouragement to them? Where do we need to grow in our faithfulness? Where could we offer connection, encouragement, and support? Where this week could you seek to offer this to someone around you? That you maybe sense, I think God has placed me in their life to be a part of their team. Or I think God, or I think that person looks to me as a part of their support or part of their team. How could I fulfill that role in being a blessing to them this week? And then third, I think we can put this uh, letter into practice by asking the question, where is God working redemption around you? Where is God working redemption around you? It would seem from the stories of Mark and Onesimus that Paul's eye was just kind of looking to see where is God doing something new? And how is he inviting me to be a part of it? Maybe even in the life of someone that I've written off or didn't think was valuable to me. Paul sees that redemption story and he invites them back into relationship. So just as God isn't done writing our story, so he is at work in the story of others. And I wonder, are we looking for this? Are we praying for this? Are we seeing opportunities where God may be at work to redeem or renew a story that we have in other ways thought was done with or over, but God is saying, I'm still at work in that story. Could we believe for that? Could we hope for that? Could we pray for that? That one day we might write in a letter of greeting to others the names of people that right now we're currently not close to or feel even that we're some kind of at odds with. That's what God seems to do in relationships and Paul shows us that here in this letter. So our faith is meant to be, our faith journey is meant to be a team sport, not a solo act. And in so many ways, we need to continue to be called back to this because so much in our society and our culture draws us into a state of individualism. But as we think this morning about the supremacy of Christ and all that Paul had to say about Jesus in this passage, it's evident that Jesus died to save us, to save us from isolation, from self-centeredness, and from the shame that so often divides us from God or from others. That that's what our rescue is about, is taking us out of a place of darkness unto ourselves and taking us into a place of something entirely different that he has saved us into a family, a people, a house, a temple, a place of belonging, and a place of togetherness. Throughout the New Testament, we're referred to as sons and daughters of God. That means plural, sons and daughters, all of us together being children of God. And in just a moment, we're gonna take of the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood, the bread and the cup, And as Jesus said that, he said, I want you to do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. And I wonder, even in that passage, do you and I tend to read you singular? Well, as often as I eat it, I need to remember him. And yet when Jesus first spoke those words, he said you in the plural. He said, whenever y'all, we kind of need to throw some Southern y'all in there. We don't have a good word for the plural you, but Jesus employed it and Paul employed it far more often than we realize. We see you and Jesus was saying you all. And so in the Lord's Supper, we see really, I think the pinnacle example that we've been called into a team sport because this is not a time for you. This is a time for you all. For us as a gathered body, a gathered temple, a gathered people to remember 
our Christ and our Savior, and in so doing to remember that he has given us one another for this journey. So are you on a solo mission? Or are you living out this life of faith with the team of people that Christ has given you and invited you into? Let's pray and then the tables will be open. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how even in this letter that Paul wrote to a church uh, there in the Middle East that we can learn so much about the kind of people you've called us to be. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us ways that we have become content, perhaps living our faith journey alone, making it about us and our strength and our plans, and yet, Lord, you've invited us to something bigger, to be a part of what you're doing, not just in us, but all around us. So, Lord, I pray that we would surrender ways of self-reliance. I pray that we'd surrender ways where we're still just self-centered, maybe in a more holy way than we were when we were trapped in sin, but it's still at the end of the day is about us. I pray that we would hear the words of Christ who said that if any person would come after me, that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and together follow after you. God, thank you that we are your people. And I pray that as we take this morning of your body and your blood, that we would celebrate not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the way in which that forgiveness gives us entry into your kingdom, your temple, your people. So Jesus, lead us in this and help us to be faithful into the things you're calling us to do next. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.